0: okay are you sad no okay i didn't read anything about her this time i read i watched my movie okay so this is all new information this is all new information okay hello and welcome to based Based on a a true true crime story. story a podcast where each week we will detail the details of a true crime and then tell you about the movie that was inspired by said crime this week we're going to talk about the
1: crazy antics of Lori Dan. That's D A N. I'm one of your hosts, Andrea. I'm your other host, Kelly. Yeah. So this is a another banana story. Holy buckets! About Lori Dan. Um, this happened up in the burbs of Chicago in the late '80s. Um, I got my information from a Wikipedia. Um, ABC 7 news article, um, or I should say news, what do you call it? When news broadcast. There you go. That's the word I can think of. Um, ABC 7 news broadcast dated May 20th, 1988, and a 1989 WGN documentary um, about this case. Nice. Yeah. So, Winnetka, Illinois, is where this takes place, and um, it happened 33 years ago. Um, a North Suburban woman who terrorized the very community that she lived in. She planted poison, set fires, opened gunfire on a schoolroom full of children, and then committed suicide, leaving a few answers behind to the many questions that she had raised. On May 20th, 1988, Lori Dan, of neighboring Glencoe, Illinois, walked into a second-grade classroom in North Suburban, Winnetka, told the students that she was there to teach them about guns, and then opened fire in the classroom. The shocking school shooting, which killed one student and injured five more, was the culmination of several days of bizarre and violent behavior from a woman who was known to suffer from mental illness. Lori Dan was born in Chicago and grew up in Glencoe, which is a north suburb of Chicago. She was the daughter of an accountant, Norman, and his wife, Edith. Those who knew her described her as shy and withdrawn, she graduated from New Trier High School in Winnetka, Illinois in 1975, which, side note, New Trier High School is the high school I believe that John Hughes uses in a lot of his films. Although she had poor grades in high school, she was able to attend Drake University in Des Moines. Um, when her grades improved, she transferred to the University of Arizona with the goal of becoming a teacher. And she did begin dating a pre-med student, and the relationship soon became serious, but she was becoming very possessive and demanding. In the summer of 1977, she attended the University of Wisconsin in Madison, taking um, a course in home economics. In 1980, with the relationship failing, she moved back to her parents' home and then transferred to Northwestern University to complete her degree. But She dropped out of all of her classes and never graduated at all. She met and married Russell Dan an executive in an insurance broker firm in September of 1982, but the marriage quickly soured as Russell's family noted signs of um, OCD and very strange behavior, including leaving trash around the house. She saw a psychiatrist for a short period of time who identified her childhood and upbringing as a cause of a lot of her problems. Lori and Russell Dan separated in October of 1985. The divorce negotiations were acrimonious, with Lori claiming that Russell was abusive. The following months, police were called to investigate various incidents, including several harassing phone calls made to Russell and his family. In April of 1986, Lori accused Russell of breaking into and vandalizing her parents' house, where she was then living. Shortly after that, she purchased a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum, telling the salesman that she needed it for self-defense. And the police were concerned about gun ownership and unsuccessfully tried to persuade her and... Her family that she should give up the gun. In August 1986, she contacted her ex-boyfriend, who was by then a resident at a hospital, and claimed to have had his child. When he refused to believe her, Lori called the hospital where he worked and claimed that he had raped her in the emergency room. In September 1986, Russell reported that he had been stabbed in his sleep with an ice pick. He accused Lori of the crime, although he had not actually seen his attacker. The police decided not to press charges against Lori based on a medical report, which suggested that the injury might have been self-inflicted, as well as Russell's abrasive attitudes towards the police and his failed polygraph test. Russell and his family continued to receive harassing hang-up phone calls, and Lori was arrested for the calls made to Russell's sister. The charges, though, were dropped due to lack of evidence. And before their divorce was finalized in 1987, Lori accused Russell of raping her. There were no physical signs of supporting Lori's claim, although she passed two polygraph tests. In May 1987, Lori accused Russell of placing an incendiary device in her home. No charges were filed against Russell for either alleged event. Lori's parents believed her claims and supported and defended her throughout this time. By now, though, Lori Dan was being treated by another psychiatrist for OCD disorder and a chemical imbalance. The psychiatrist told police that he did not think that Lori was suicidal or homicidal. Um, Lori Dan worked as a babysitter and some employers were very happy with the care she provided for their children. Others made complaints to the police about damage to their furniture and the theft of food and clothes. But despite the complaints, no charges were ever pressed and Dan's father did pay for the damages in one of these cases. In the summer of 1987, Lori sublet a university apartment in Evanston, Illinois. Once again, her strange behavior was noted, including riding up and down the elevators for hours, wearing rubber gloves to touch metal, and leaving meat to rot in the sofa cushions. Absolutely no classes at the university. In the fall of eighty seven in the fall of eighty seven, Lori claimed that she had received threatening letters from Russell and that he had again sexually assaulted her in a parking lot, but the police did not believe her. A few weeks later, she purchased another gun, a thirty two caliber Smith and Wesson revolver. With her condition deteriorating, Dan and her family sought specialized help. In November of eighty seven, she moved to Madison, Wisconsin, to live in a, a student residence while being observed by a psychiatrist who specialized in obsessive compulsive disorder. She had already begun to take clemen I can never say these words, a drug for OCD, and her new psychiatrist increased the dosage, also adding lithium carbonate to reduce her mood swings and initiating behavior therapy to work on her phobias. And ritualistic behaviors despite the intervention her strange behavior continued including riding the elevators for long periods changing television channels repeatedly an obsession with good and bad numbers and there were also concerns whether or not she was bulimic she then purchased a 22 semi-automatic beretta at the end of december of 87 In March of 1988, she stopped attending her appointments with the psychiatrist and behavioral therapist. About the same time, she began to make preparations for her attacks. She stole books from the library on poisons, and she diluted arsenic and other chemicals from a lab. She shoplifted clothes and wigs to disguise herself and was arrested for theft on one occasion. Both her psychiatrist and her father tried to persuade her to enter the hospital as inpatient, but she refused. Lori continued to make numerous hang-up calls to her former in-laws and babysitting clients. Eventually, the calls escalated to death threats. An ex-boyfriend and his wife also received dozens of threatening calls. And in May of 88, a letter, later confirmed to have been sent by Lori Dan, was sent to the hospital administration where her ex-boyfriend then worked, again accusing him of sexual assault. Since the phone calls were across state lines, the FBI became involved and a federal indictment against her was prepared. However, the ex-boyfriend, fearful of publicity and concerned about Dan getting bail and then attempting to fulfill her threats against him, decided to wait until other charges were filed in Illinois. In May 1988, a janitor found her lying in the field position inside a garbage bag in a trash room. This precipitated a search of her room and her departure back to Glencoe. Before May 20th, she personally delivered snacks and juice samples samples and quotes there mm-hmm. to acquaintances and families mm-hmm. for whom she had babysat for, and some of who had some of whom who had not seen her for years. Other snacks were delivered to the Alpha Tau Omega Pi Epsilon and Kappa Sigma fraternity houses and Leveron Hall at Northwestern University. Notes were attached to some of the deliveries. The drinks were often leaking and the squares were unpleasant tasting, so few were very, so very few were actually consumed. In addition, arsenic was highly diluted, so nobody became seriously ill. According to the police at the time, Dan started her day around. 9 a.m. at the home of a family she had previously babysat for. There she took two of the children on what she had told her their parents was a previously planned date to a carnival in Evanston, but there was no carnival, and instead she took them to an elementary school in Highland Park, where she attempted to set a fire. The small blaze was quickly extinguished. She then drove the children home about 10.15, and while they and their mother were in the basement, set fire to the house. The the family was able to escape out a basement window and were not injured. While firefighters extinguished the house fire, Lori was already on her way to Hubbard Woods Elementary School in Winnetka. In the school, Lori encountered a boy in the hallways, pushed him into a nearby washroom, and shot him. She attempted to shoot two other boys, but her gun jammed. The boys ran for help. Then she walked into a second grade classroom. She was armed with two handguns. She told the teacher a substitute to gather her students one at one end of the classroom. Their teacher did not and tried to disarm Lori instead, who then opened fire. Five children were struck, and eight-year-old Nicholas Corwin died of his injuries. Peter Monroe was one of the Hubbard Woods Elementary School victims from that day. He was just eight years old at the time, and it has taken him 30 years to finally speak about the day. After getting shot, my Emma was trying to live my life as, it, as if it never happened. Back then, Monroe was a scared and confused schoolchild who took a single bullet through his hand and stomach, and the second grader spent the hospital, or spent the summer in and out of hospital. I didn't understand what had happened, and I could tell from looking at adults and seeing their reactions that this was something significant, but for me, it was just an interruption of springtime. It felt to me like shackles were holding me down, stuck to the hospital bed, and just wanting to go outside. With time, his body healed, but over the years, his head and heart did not. The hardest pill to swallow is that I had some symptoms of PTSD. I was anxious. I had trouble trusting, which is a huge struggle for me. And after it happened, people that loved me, my family, said, you're going to have to deal with this. And I thought, I didn't ask for this to happen to me. I just want to live my life. There's a park in Minnesota named for the boy that died, which was Nicholas Corwin, Um, there's a park in Winnicka named for him. It's one of the few reminders in the town of that deadly day. Lori then fled the school, but found nearby roads blocked due to a funeral. She changed her route and found herself at the Andrew home. Philip Andrew, then 20 years old, had come home from college and was in the kitchen with his mother when Lori burst in. She was armed, but claimed she had been raped and had shot her assailant. Philip Andrew is now over 50 and 33 years ago, Dan Lori had surprised the college swimmer and his mom the day that he had returned home from the University of Illinois for the summer she just walked in the back door and my mom and I are shocked we had never seen anything like this before he said she had this she had us at gunpoint immediately and said that we were hostages she looked disheveled that she had been running and sweating she was very upset Andrew was able to take one gun away from Lori and removed the clip and convinced her to let his parents go free but she kept him as a hostage and when the police arrived shot him in the chest he managed to make it out of a back door before collapsing and being rescued by paramedics i saw a flash and heard a pop and thought she's shooting at me and i dove immediately out of the way and into the pantry where i kicked the door shut i got in the corner basically barring the door that's when i realized i had been hit and andrew said Lori ran upstairs, and Andrew staggered outside to the police with one of the killer's guns in his hands. One bullet punctured both of his lungs and his esophagus, his stomach, and pancreas. He was taken to Highland Park Hospital and survived his injuries. Now alone in the Andrew home, Lori maintained a standoff with police for hours. During negotiations, police brought in her parents and her ex-husband in an effort to get her to give herself up. With the home surrounded, she committed suicide in an upstairs bedroom. Parents and members of the community subsequently devoted many years to gun control policy. Philip Andrew gave interviews about gun control from his hospital bed and later became active in local and state gun control organizations as the executive director of the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence. He subsequently became a lawyer and then an FBI agent. The Dan shooting also fueled some debate of poor criteria for committing mentally ill people to mental health facilities against their will. Some favored the involuntary commitment of a person who is determined to be mentally ill and incapable of making informed decisions about treatment. Civil libertarians like Benjamin Wolfe, staff counsel for the ACLU, opposed the idea, saying it it would be a shame if we cut back on the civil liberties of literally millions of mentally ill people because of this occasional bizarre incident. Some blamed Glory Dan's family for defending and protecting her in spite of the signs of her deteriorating mental health investigations were hampered by the Wasserman's refusal to be interviewed by police or provide access to her psychiatric records Um, the records were eventually obtained by a court order on the night of um, her death the Wassermans allowed only a brief search of her bedroom which was then cleaned and removed and and any potential evidence was removed the police were criticized for not sealing off her room as part of a crime scene And parents of the shooting victim subsequently sued the Wasserman family for damage. Further criticism was directed at her psychiatrist for failing to identify or take action regarding um, the signs of Lori's decreasing mental stability. At the time of her suicide, Lori was taking an unlicensed drug, flaminoprene, and the effects of this drug were initially considered as a contributing factor to her mental well-being, but ultimately it was ruled out. Two newspaper clippings were found among her possessions after her death. One described a man who had randomly killed two people in a public building, and the other described a depressed young man who had attempted to commit suicide in the same way that Dan did. He survived and discovered that his brain injury had cured him of his obsessive compulsive disorder. One theory of, Dan, of Lori's rationale was that she had targeted people who had, in a sense, disappointed her in some way. Her ex-husband, her former sister-in-law, she tried to firebomb her children's school, um, her ex-boyfriend and his wife, the family who was moving away, as well as former friends and babysitting clients. Lori was briefly investigated as a possible suspect in the, chi- in the Chicago Tylenol murders as well, but there was no direct connection found. Philip Andrew recovered and went on to spend 21 years with the FBI, specializing in hostage and crisis negotiations. He consults in crisis management and works for the Archdiocese of Chicago as their Director of Violence Prevention. He talks to students and counsels schools, and in a search for moral leadership, he hopes, to access, um, he hopes to access guns and mental illness will get some real attention. He's now married, has four kids, and still swims. It's important that you talk about it, he said. You have to express it, and you have to get over the chain, the guilt, and you have to tell the story. For me, it has become a lifetime of telling the story. Philip also stated that the traumatic mental health response was developed after that day and is the standard for what is used today following mass casualty shootings. He said that his life has been greatly informed by the lessons from that day. Monroe is also now a husband and father and a licensed clinical social worker at Rush University um, in Chicago. I have accepted that it happened to me and it did change me and it has affected the way I view the world, he said. I feel like if I can help someone with my story, then it's worth it. Monroe hopes telling his story will also have an impact in some way. He not only speaks out publicly, but has created a website called living after trauma where he shares his full story. Wow. Yeah. So we will just get right into, um... and I had never heard of this case until um, I had watched the movie that you're about to go over. Murder of innocence. Yes. Yes.
0: Uh yep, so Murder of Innocence was released November thirtieth of nineteen ninety-three. It stars Valerie Bertinelli of One Day at a Time, hot in Cleveland and most eighties and nineties, uh, made for TV movies. She was married to Eddie Van Halen as yes. well. Yes. Uh and Stephen Caffrey. Uh he was on All My Children for a while. He played Andrew Cortland. So oh, okay. I know who yeah. he is. And it was directed by Tom McLaughlin in case you wanted to know that, based off of a book by Joel Kaplan. Okay. And I'm going to talk about this movie. And I will say that the movie itself was very disjointed. It was like bits and pieces mm-hmm. and like, yeah, it was hard to write about without just like a sentence, and a sentence and a sentence and a sentence because and I'm not sure if if they were, you know, intentionally trying to do that to kind of give us a, a peek into, you know, what could be going on to our mind. I, yeah, just I, always got,
1: the, I got, always got the impression that it was like crazy like that because that's how she felt in her, right. in her brain. I'm going to give the director the benefit of the doubt. Okay.
0: And say that that's why it was like that. So, okay. Yeah. So you'll just have to forgive the storytelling. That's okay. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, The movie starts, and it flashes across the screen based on a true story, and a helicopter is hovering over a large suburban home, and soon we are shown an army of law enforcement agents descending. They're all holding guns and sneaking in through shrubbery, their eyes and guns trained on the large suburban home. They all cock their guns, and a gentleman in a suit and a tie man's a bullhorn, and he calls for someone named Lori and says that no one wants to hurt, hurt her. Lori, I'm guessing, is lying face down what appears to be a child's bed in a very pink floral bedroom. She's dressed in gray sweats and is very sweaty. Uh, Cut to Lori as a child being asked if she wants to play Queen Bee. Uh, Children all whisper about her, but she eventually agrees to play, and she sits atop a metal slide while children scurry about below her. What is this game? I've never heard <laughs> I've of this I've never game. heard of it. Uh, and the whole time she's muttering under her breath, please protect me, please protect me. And then it cuts back to adult Lori saying the same thing. A handsome man, also in a suit, shows up outside and asks the man on the bullhorn if there's anything he can do. Uh, the man with the bullhorn says no, but tells him he can wait back there. And the handsome man in the suit cuts to sitting in a restaurant talking to a couple about an insurance policy uh, while the entitled man in the next table argues with somebody about the state of his steak. His waitress is Lori, and she is sassy, and this handsome man is intrigued by her. So he excuses himself to go hit on her and then asks her out on a date. And Matthew is is his name, and we discover in the next scene, and uh, Matthew and Lori are having a picnic with Matthew's family. When Lori is asked what she wants to drink, she hesitates and checks with Matthew first, then has the same thing that he does. The next scene is Lori and Matthew's wedding, and Matthew interrupts Lori, who's being scolded by her parents. They don't appear to be very happy about the wedding. And Matthew gives a toast, thanking his parents, while Lori sits with her head down. Uh, She appears anxious, and he then says that she's going to give a toast as well, tells her just to uh, uh, say the things that they had written down. But she gets up, and uh, her parents are kind of waiting anxiously as well, as if they're waiting for the the other shoe to drop. And she ends up just telling everybody, thank you, and then sits back down.
1: I got the impression in this movie that her parents were really out there as well. Like, like at the wedding scene, like they just, I felt like she was like an annoyance to them.
0: Um, I think, you know, based later on some of the stuff that her mother says, I mean, definitely the father is the dominating yeah. person in this relationship. And right. she's very much a, still kind of a doting housewife, even though it's the eighties mm-hmm. uh, and they have a lot of their own issues Right. Uh, ignoring all of her her issues is probably number one. Yes. So, uh, the, next scene, the next scene shows movers carrying a couch into a new house where Lori is surrounded by boxes. The movers ask her where she wants them to put the couch, and she freezes and then starts crying. Matthew comes home to a house stacked with boxes, and Lori's sobbing in the kitchen. She tells him that she didn't want to get it wrong. And then in the next scene, Lori taps on the window three times, and then a vase, and then a coffee table before flashing back to getting yelled at as a child when doing so. And then the next scene shows Matthew's sister Linda with her two children inside her home, the kids imploring to stay with Aunt Lori. Apparently Lori was to babysit the children while uh, Linda had a doctor's appointment but hadn't shown up yet. Just as they are bundling back up, Lori's car pulls up in the driveway, so Linda rushes out and stops to talk to Lori on the way. Lori breathlessly says that there was an accident before passing out. And Lori wakes up to Linda and Matt talking outside of the house and Linda tells Matt that there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with the car or with Lori and asks if she's been acting strange lately. Lori overhears and comes storming out, outside demanding that they leave. And Matt asks Lori if she made the whole story up and she says yes before pulling away. Uh, then the next scene cuts to her vacuuming in the middle of the night uh, for Matthew's parents who aren't coming for another week. And then we see her walking down the middle of the street in her pajamas and a hoodie, and then she's crawling on the, the ground uh, in the middle of the street. Then Matt comes home expecting Lori to be ready for a dinner reservation, only to find she has moved all of her makeup and the kitchen utensils into the refrigerator, and then has also wrote all over their bedroom walls in lipstick or red nail polish. Uh, and she has written things like pain and suffer, and there are pictures of a little girl and a slide. Uh, When Matt goes to put something in the closet, Lori comes out brandishing a knife. And they go to see a psychiatrist who treats it like a marriage counseling session instead of addressing the fact that Lori came at her husband with a knife. Uh, Lori suggests that she should try to find a job, so she lies about her qualifications and gets hired. When she tells Matt, she's at first very excited, uh, but then says she's replacing a woman who's having a baby and asks if she can have a baby too, so then she wouldn't have to go to work at all. At work, she keeps to herself, and then has a moment where she takes her soda and dumps it into the keyboard while imagining a large fire. And that's just how the whole movie was, just right. these little vignettes of yeah. all of these different things that she did. Right. Um, never trying to explain it, never trying to uh, piece them together or anything like that. Yeah. So, uh, At a gathering at Linda's house, Lori spends all of her time with Linda's kids and not the adults, so Matt asks Lori's parents if there was ever anything wrong with her. Her mother says that when she was in junior high, her ears stuck out. And so she had trouble making friends, so they got her surgery to fix her ears, and then everything was fine after that. That's not how that works. Yeah. Linda tells Matt that it's okay to get divorced, and he confesses that the doctor doesn't have a handle on Lori's issues, but he's not going to get divorced. And then Linda says, because Lori is pretty, men have a hard time believing there are things wrong with her, and she's not going to get the help that she needs. And the next scene shows Lori sitting in a park watching women interact and trying to model their behavior. And she then picks up her soda with her sweater over her hands. And we are shown her explaining to her doctor some, that sometimes she can't touch things. And he just calls it a quirk. And Lori asks, am I going crazy? And the doctor blows it off, stating that she's been under a lot of strain and then just writes her a prescription. The next scene shows Matt in Lori's office asking to see her so they can go to lunch. The woman he stopped explains that Lori only worked there for two days and that she destroyed a computer terminal, and they expect to be reimbursed for the damages. Obviously upset, Matt heads to a very messy home where Lori is just laying in bed. She says they were horrible to her there, and then admits she isn't taking her medicine anymore because it's just tranquilizers and makes her tired. Then she tries to seduce him. He turns her down, and she says that sex is the only thing she knows how to do anymore. He stands, overwhelmed in the messy kitchen, and she comes out and says she's going to make herself something to eat. He tells her that he can't deal with her illness anymore and suggests she go back home and have her parents take care of her. And he calls Lori's parents and her father dismisses him and says there's nothing wrong with her. And once Lori gets on the phone, she too acts like nothing is wrong and Matt gets angry and storms out. Lori moves back in with her parents who are leaving for Florida. She tells them she's going to be moving back home with Matt until they're out of their house so that she can have some alone time. And she shows back up and Matt ends up taking her back and she tells him that she will do anything that he wants her to be. While he's at work, obviously a time before caller ID or star 69, Lori takes time out of her laundry schedule to call Linda and tell her that she's not better than anyone else, you know, like you do. And Matt comes home bearing gifts, and Lori has made dinner and done the laundry. And it's a very big deal in this scene that she was able to do those quote-unquote normal things for the day. Uh, But she has actually washed everything and folded it all and put it away in the drawers without actually drying it. And the next scene shows Matt doing research on mental disorders in the library while Lori is tearing the house apart before drawing on the wall with lipstick again. He keeps muttering, Lori, 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 safe, 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 777. Then we see Matt dropping Lori off at her parents' house where he encourages her to keep working with the doctor. She calls Linda and Matthew, breathing heavy into the receiver and then hangs up. And then we hear uh, foreboding music and see a shadow in Matt's house. The person, who wears a pink sweatsuit just as Lori had on, stabs him with an ice pick. Uh, The police officer has a hard time believing it was Lori and questions her, where she blames Linda's husband. Matt uses a key to enter Lori's parents' house, and the officer sees how messy the house is. And then they find the packaging for an ice pick, which Matt picks up. He accuses the police of not doing anything until she's going to murder somebody. Then we're at the courthouse where Lori's lawyer is discussing the terms of the settlement, divorce settlement with her. She heads to the car where she has a delusion that Matthew follows her to the car and assaults her on the hood while people walk by and ignore it. Next, Lori decides to go back to school and her dad helps her get into an apartment off campus. There's a montage of her walking in circles in her bathrobe on campus, washing her hands and boiling hot water, uh, making a hit list of Matt and Linda. And then the state of her apartment deteriorating, placing prank calls while wearing gloves, slamming her front door over and over again, all the while getting sweatier and sweatier. Because that's what you do when you have a mental illness. You sweat a lot.
1: Yes. Uh, she. This also- was the part that this these, this <clears throat> montage of scenes is the one that I always remember and I always think of, and I don't know if you're going to talk about it next, but I always think of the landlord coming in and, you know, about the meat. The meat that yeah. she's stitched everywhere. Yep. Um... She also decides to get a
0: gun, and when they're interviewing her, um, and really the interview just involves, do these apply to you? And they go through this list of questions, and she says no. You know, Do you have a mental illness? Have you ever killed anybody? Do you have a warrant? All of that kind of stuff. She just says no to all of it, and that apparently makes you safe enough to own a gun. And Matt gets the follow-up letter at the house for the gun permit and brings it to the police. While Lori starts collecting raw meat and writing all over the walls and mirrors in her apartment. The landlord eventually notices the smell and calls her father and the police. The father tells the police that he will deal with it. Meanwhile, the police officer talks to his chief about charging her. And he tells him that he's got nothing to charge her with. And we're treated to another montage of her accusing Matt of rape. Her father saying that Matt is unhappy with the settlement, so he's trying to make Lori look bad. Lori tearing curtains with scissors uh, before ending up at the park where she stands beneath a slide, remembering sitting at the top while screaming kids ran beneath her. She then puts out a flyer to start babysitting. She has one family that she babysits for regularly, and the kids love her. Uh, The officer goes to Lori's house to talk to her about her gun. She says she got it because she didn't feel safe with Matthew, but she has since put it in a safety deposit box. The officer suggests they go pick it up and bring it to the station. And at Lori's babysitting job, the mother lets her go because they've got family moving in with them that will watch the kids. Good thing, because Lori has just written on the bathroom wall. And I know I wouldn't be very happy if I caught my babysitter doing that. Uh, Lori uses her babysitting money to buy another gun and lots of bullets. Next, we see Lori injecting something into juice boxes. She then does the same thing with a batch of candy before calling the family she sat for and inviting the children to the carnival. Uh, She pulls out her hit list before dropping off her tainted candy to her lawyer, her psychiatrist, uh, Linda, and Matt. She picks the kids up and offers them the candy, which are actually just rice. I was going to
1: say the candy is just rice. Yeah. And the children
0: spit it out immediately because of the taste. She then drives to the school where Linda's kids attend and pulls out a gun out of the trunk. Uh, She is stopped in the hallway and she tells the administrator that she's picking the kids up because there's been an accident and he insists on calling the children's parents before pulling them out. Lori asks to go to the bathroom while he makes the call and panic and ducks into room seven. The teacher thinks she's there from the university to observe, so she has her sit in the back. The kids notice her appearance and start whispering, causing her to regress back to the slide incident from childhood, which we never actually find out right. what happened yeah. uh, and, and what that game was or why it uh, sticks out in her mind. And she imagines the children from her childhood running around and falling to the ground every time she makes a fist. But what has actually happened is she has shot some of the children in the classroom uh, before escaping while running through the woods. The detective that's been working on her case shows up at the school. One child is dead and three critically injured. He notices the children Lori babysit for and asks them what they're doing. They tell him that Lori said to wait there and he's like, oh shit, maybe I should have taken that more seriously. And Lori, meanwhile, happens upon a house with an open front door and walks in, telling the mother and adult son that they are her hostages as she is running from the police because she was raped and has shot her rapist. The young man tells Lori that he'd like to get everything settled before his little sisters come home from school. And she asks what school they attend and reveals that that is where she was and that she shot some people there. Uh, He realizes that she has lied about being raped and offers to let her call someone if uh, she will let his mother free, and she calls her own mother. She tells Lori that everything will be okay before the son gets back onto the phone and asks Lori's mother to come get her. Lori's mom refuses because that would mean admitting that there's something wrong with your daughter. And then the son convinces Lori to let his mother go, and she runs to the police. The son tries to talk to Lori, and she shoots him before heading upstairs to the pink bedroom. The son, meanwhile, drags himself outside where the police descend. Lori's parents show up to the scene, and they have her dad try to talk to her, and Lori's mom is interviewed by a police officer and lies and says that she had no idea that Lori was like this, and that it would probably be better if she didn't make it out of this situation alive. And the police descend upon the house while Lori's father tries to convince her to answer the phone. They find her in the little girl's room, and she has shot herself. One child died, while six others, including the hostage, were wounded. And uh, there's some script at the end, and it says, quote, psychologists studying the records of Lori's life have been unable to determine the exact causes of the nature of her illness. In the aftermath of Lori Wade's rampage, Illinois legislature passed a law prohibiting violent, suicidal, or threatening persons from legally obtaining or holding a firearm. And that is the end of
1: that movie. I looked up queen bee as a game and i didn't really find anything except i did find that it is a mix of jump rope tag and follow the leader um see if you can catch me anything the queen bee does the worker bee must copy while trying to catch up with and tag the queen bee the queen bee may leave and enter the rope as she wishes it doesn't say anything about a slide no it doesn't seem like she has sat on the slide and I, yeah there was no rhyme
0: or reason to the game, and no no explanation as to why that uh, hit the real game.
1: Why writers. that made
0: her regress, or, or why that uh, instigated all of this.
1: Right. You know, they kept
0: referring back to it, like that was the culminating incident, but never explained what happened or anything like that. So, right. Um, and I guess the whole, the movie and the case just kind of uh, magnify the Problem with our gun laws, the problem with access to mental health, and you know how for a very long time none of that was taken seriously. Yeah, if this movie took place
1: today, it would be. I don't know. I still think there's a stigma around it. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. It's just bizarre that like I don't really think about school shootings until like a couple years later, with like Columbine. Columbine yeah. You know, this happened late 80s, and that would never would have. Been... Heard to me that something like that would have happened, but I was also, you know, an eleven-year-old. Yeah, but that. how much do you
0: think it was because it was a woman? Oh, it was an adult woman. Yes, that's true too. I don't know. But I mean, that's just people who have a history of violence and mental illness having access
1: to guns. It's funny that that back, yeah, back then you could just go and answer a couple questions, and yeah. here you go. Yes, it's horrific that this all happened. It's horrific
0: that if her parents had identified. Taking some responsibility when she was a child mm-hmm. um, that maybe this could have all been stopped and these you know nobody ever knew exactly what was wrong with her but I'm sure if she had actually went to a psychiatrist that listened to her and tried to diagnose her that perhaps they could have worked with her prescriptions and her mm-hmm. dosages and stuff like that and eventually gotten to a place where None of this stuff would have happened. You know, she wasn't symptomatic, and none of this would have happened. Right. So, two weeks of uh, crazy women. Real bummers. I don't know if there was any medicine
1: that Diane Downs could have had that that's, would, have, uh, yeah, that's that true would too. have
0: fixed her issues. She was nope. just psychotic and sociopathic. And,
1: yes. So, we're going to take a break. Um, yeah. We'll um, be back in Be January. back in January of 2020. You know. We just like to spend the holidays with our families. Yes, and it's busy and, you know, things going on so we'll pick up again in 2020 but uh I'm sure we'll keep our Instagram and Twitter hopping while you're on your Christmas uh, while we're on our Christmas vacation I suppose. <laughs> um You can check us out on Instagram at Based on a True Crime Story I always let Kelly do Twitter because I always screw it up It is at Based on a True CR1. There you go and we also have an email based on a true crime story at gmail.com. We
0: also want you to rate, review, and subscribe five stars and, and recommend us share with friends, anything to get people listening. Yeah. Uh, if you have any ideas for cases you'd like us to cover, uh, you know, seek us out on our
1: social media and let us know. We're always uh, uh, looking for things. So, oh, I do have a, um, a podcast recommendation. Uh, that is true crime-ish called Disgraceland. About Elvis Presley? No, it's oh. not about Elvis, but I mean, they do different stories and a lot of it has to do with different um, kind of like a, a crime or a situation that happens that has to do with like the entertainment industry. Um, One was about uh, Led Zeppelin and how like some house that they rented was haunted or something to that effect. Ooh. It's kind of good. I have enjoyed what I've listened to so far. There's a couple seasons of it, so that's my recommendation this week. This time, I should say. I Uh, haven't listened to anything new. I'm still trying to keep up with all the stuff I'm currently listening to. Yes. And uh, yeah, so we will see you after the new year. Have a great holiday season and happy new year and we'll see you then. Bye! Bye!